Welcome. My name is Jordan McDuff, and I am here talking about Calvinism. Um, today, we are here to talk about this video about total depravity. Um, this is a series that I want to call uh, Calvinism and Everyone Else, um, because <clears throat> people have this idea that Calvinism is somehow opposed to Christianity. And when people say the word Calvinism, they think that they're creating a, a, a buzzword of some sort. They think that they are creating some sort of uh, that they're we are the other right and and there's just this really weird um, it's just really weird to me that a lot of Christians they 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 kind of single out Calvin Calvinists for being unbiblical and um, so I just decided you know as a Calvinist myself as a Reformed theologian. You know, I just like to take on things. And so what I've done and what I like to do is to take, um, <clears throat> I made a spreadsheet of where we defer, right? And um, this is really going to be just uh, notes of where um, where we kind of defer, like where things uh, are opposite and where everything kind of goes. And the real problem that we find is that, um, when Calvin, when not when non-Calvinists uh, talk about uh, Calvinism, they don't know um, a lot of of what the origin of the conversation is, right? And so, just a quick quick summary: um, John Calvin was a Reformed theologian who had a problem with the Catholic Church, who essentially had a monopoly on the Christian faith for a long time, um, essentially. Um, with the growth of information and the launch of everything, there were some people that were opposed to John Calvin that were also uh, Protestant, right? So this is Catholic Church split off from Protestant. Protestant split into two different things. We have Arminians and we have Calvinism. Like, that's just the two camps that we are in. It's one or the other, unfortunately. Just like we have Protestant and Catholic, right? These are two camps that we have been, uh, we have adopted Historically, <clears throat> I have a lot of people that tell me, like, oh, uh, you, I, I don't have to be either one, right? But it's like, you wind yourself into that, right? It's like, it's just a label, and people are very anti-label, right? Because they just want to be a Christian, which is fine. It's totally fine to just want to be a Christian. But for the sake of argument, right, for the sake of the conversation, and for the sake of helping people understand where your position is, it usually, instead of me saying, hello, I am human, I have, I am male, I am Jordan McDuff, my name is Jordan McDuff, I am wearing a blue baseball cap, right? No, we just say, you can see me, you can say, hi, I'm Jordan, right? You can tell I'm a male, you can figure these things out, but if there's something that we might be in question about, for example, um, hey, are you a Cubs fan? No, I'm actually a Braves fan. I'm wearing a Braves hat. Oh, my bad. Okay, so that kind of, you know, well, we got past the name, human, male, all that. And that's what we're trying to do, is the name Calvinist comes from an ancient practice of having a leader as your ist, right? <laughs> is that we have um, the Brownist, for example. The Puritans were called Brownist because of Robert Brown. And we have the Pauline era. We have... Calvinists, we have Lutheran, we have John the Baptist, we have all of these people, and uh, we just, it's just a tradition to just have a mentor and then to follow that mentor. And people think that Calvinism is like this cult, right? It's like, no, we're just trying to be biblically focused. And reading the Bible is the most offensive thing to people. And when you read the Bible for the text, what it says, and you'll see, like, I'm just going to do it right now. We're going to watch this guy. His name is 
soteriology, soteriology, I don't know what, I guess I'm pronouncing that wrong, but this that's just the reality of it. And we're gonna start on his video about total depravity, right? And I'll give him the credit. He really tries not to take Calvinist out of context, but he does. Like he just, he just can't get out of this, I'm taking them out of context. He even complains about people take, saying that he takes things out of context when he tries so hard to use their words. So let's just run into it. Um, <clears throat> some backstory. He found the he found this photo, a meme essentially, of this guy that sent him, and you know the tulip T U L I P tulip, you know, and someone had posted a photo of a bunch of verses backing up each letter of tulip, you know, and I'm not going to get into it right now, but that's just kind of the so he just said, hey, let's go through all the verses, so that's what we're going to do. So here is his video, here we go. So you can kind of see on the video, um, he's got Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, and he's got 27 verses all the way through. And he starts off this whole thing with um, essentially, uh, Calvinists have a different vocabulary than everybody else, but we use the same words. That's Mormonism, okay? <clears throat> or, or some cult, right? We don't do that. We have words that we have essentially just been able to use and define instances. For example, the word presuppositionalism. That's not a biblical word, but it it it, it responds to a biblical thing, just like the word tr uh, trinity. Trinity is not a biblical word. It's nowhere in the Bible, but we can see that there are three parts of God. So anyway, let's kick this off. I'm starting at minute 236 and uh, just the kind of pleasantries I'm kind of getting out of the way. So, um, actually, I'm going to pause for a moment. I want to define, before we even kick into this, I want to define what total depravity is. Let's just all have common terms. Let's get this out of the way. All right. Christianity.com. Okay, not exactly bent in any direction, just kind of bare bones, this is what it is, broadest definition you can come up with. Total depravity doesn't teach that we are all as bad as we possibly could be in a practical sense. Total depravity simply means that every part of our being is corrupted by sin. <clears throat> and specifically, that our will, our human will, is bent in on itself so that we cannot seek God. We will not choose God in and of ourselves. We need God's effectual grace, his power working to change our hearts and to change our minds so that we do choose him, right? So we do choose God, but only when God acts on us first. We cannot choose God by ourselves, by ourselves, us, ourselves alone. That is it, right? That's total depravity. And he agrees with this premise, but he doesn't understand the definition of total depravity. So let's go. When we say total depravity, uh, when a Calvinist says total depravity, they have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary sometimes, right? So when we say, yes, are we depraved? Yes. Are we affected by sin at every part of us? Yes. Uh, sin affects us, sin corrupts. All of the bad things that Calvinists like to say about sin, we, we would all agree. But when the Calvinist talks about depravity, they're not just talking about being sinful they're talking about also being morally unable to respond even to god calling us to be reconciled from that depravity and he's already wrong right because he thinks that we're talking about our response to god uh where did my uh where did my thing go oh no there it is okay he says so this is this is what it is, right? It's it's a he thinks we think kind of situation, where it's like he thinks we think this, right? He says when a Calvinist says total depravity, they are not just talking about being sinful, they are talking about being morally unable. Currently, he's currently in the correct, unable to respond even to God calling us to be reconciled. That's where it's wrong, right? It's by ourselves. It's separate. We are, our sin separates us from God, right? So we cannot respond to, to something that we haven't been shown. We're sinful nature. We cannot be shown something without the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit is what shows us the truth of God, right? And so, yes, we understand at birth, there are, there are a few things that you know at birth. First of all, the difference between good and evil, right? That's what we're born with. That is something that is biologically trans transferred from Adam and Eve. Second, you have an innate understanding of who God is. You don't agree that he is the Savior, but you understand that there is a creator. You understand that God is there, but you haven't accepted him yet in any capacity. You just have a head knowledge, right? And that comes from Romans 1.18, where it's like you don't have an excuse for not knowing God. Everyone knows God, right? Because you can see him in the invisible qualities. So there's that. Fourth, we're born sinners. We are born sinners. That is Psalms 51, all the way through Psalms 51, Psalms 58, and Genesis 6. All right, and I have them pulled up. I'll, I'll read them in a moment. But these are the things that people keep misunderstanding, is that we cannot respond to God by ourselves. We cannot go upwards when, when our sinful nature has limited us to our sinful nature alone. Right, so that's that's where we're gonna have a big mistake. That's where this whole thing goes off the rails at the very beginning. So you're depraved, yes, we all agree, but you're also therefore unable to recognize that fact and confess it in light of the law and the gospel. And that's where he's right. Okay, and let me let me read this back to you. Okay, I would say uh, no, no, no. Hold on. Are we depraved? Yes. Are we affected by that? Yes. Um. We agree you're depraved, but people cannot recognize the fact and confess it in light of the law and the gospel. The gospel is an interpersonal great commission. is the is a good way to do it. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the interpersonal delegation between the freedom of you know the exchange of ideas. When I bring the gospel to somebody, I'm not God. Right? I'm not the one that's going up to them and changing their life. Right? I am not God. Right? And so I cannot change someone's heart. And that's where there is a, a, a mistake. <clears throat> because a lot of people believe that when they speak the gospel, they are speaking essentially on behalf of God himself. Right? And, and they are to a certain degree. But at the same time, you don't have the power of God to change someone, you're not the one saving somebody. You're the one that is essentially being part of the process. You're a small gear in the watch, right? You're just you're just taking along, right? And you're doing your job. And God's job is to to plan. He had a plan, and he's executing. Now the thing is, I'm not going to get too much into this. The thing is that the gospel and the law are separate from God acting on us. The gospel and the law, I can hold that in my hands. This is not God. This is not God. This is God's word, but this is not the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the Bible. This is the gospel. This is the law. This is the story. But this right here is not the Holy Spirit, right? And that's the difference that we're trying to get at is that there is a difference between the gospel and the Holy Spirit moving on someone, right? That's, that's a huge difference. And that's, that's where I say, okay, chapter verse, because what you'll have here and what you'll notice, I think, as we go through these passages, you'll see verse after verse after verse that don't even hit on a unique aspect of Calvinism. In other words, they don't support total depravity from the Calvinistic vantage point. They just support common depravity that all of us as Christians, both Calvinist and non-Calvinist, hold to. And that's the problem. Is It's, it's like what we've illustrated before in that debate when I did the, the, the cups. The cups. Uh, some of y'all remember this. Uh, Eric, uh, uh, excuse me, Caleb put this together for us and so, that, so I wouldn't have to hold up my little uh, cup tray. Um, and remember what we explained here is that, um, you know, Calvinists have a, t a tendency to bring up all these proof texts, right? Yeah, we're really good at sticking to the Bible alone. That's what we're really good at. <laughs> and um, for any particular view. And I just take that little proof text like a ball and I can just drop it into one of these cups. 
Okay. So you bring me a verse about all sinning and I'll drop it into that first cup, right? Because that's where it belongs. If you talk about everybody sins, then every well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay. So we drop it in there in that first cup because we agree everybody sins. That's not a point of contention. Uh, everybody needs help. We, we don't initiate anything. God's the one who initiates. He Congratulations, brother. You are a Calvinist. <laughs> Let me read that. Let's play it back. Uh, everybody needs help. We, we don't initiate anything. God's the one who initiates. He comes. There it is. And I'm, and I'm not cutting him off or taking him out of context here. This is what he says. And I'm going to put it, I'm going to read it right here. We don't initiate anything. God initiates everything. He comes to seek and save the lost. No one can do this on their own. We don't believe that God leaves anyone on their own. Now, the last part, the we don't believe that God leaves anyone on their own, that's an incorrect statement. But we don't initiate anything. God initiates everything. That is a great summary and definition, essentially. It's a very, um, I'd say it's a little um, new age, <laughs> a little colloquial, but it's a great, a, a, at least a general understanding of uh, total depravity. Right? The, the fact is, we don't initiate anything. Here we are in our sinful nature being sinners. That's all we are. And then God is the one who chose us from the very beginning of the time. And God acts out his plan. He executes. And he does. He successes at all times. It's not us who chooses God. It's not this up and down kind of conversation. It's just one way. And it's no different if you were to think about it. It's no different than the way that you preach or try to teach somebody. It's no different. Right? If you were to go to somebody and you were to try to teach them, you're not the one saving them. It's not you and him having this conversation. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through you into that person. Right? So you're not the one saving them. It's the same concept. You're just being a conduit to what the Father wants. So at the same time, you have to also accept the fact that God is working through you as a conduit for the Father and for Jesus, essentially. Uh, for Jesus, not the Father. Jesus, specifically. And that's in John. You know, I can go through that if you'd like, but I'm not going to today. Um, but <clears throat> you're not the one that saves. And you can't save yourself. right? You can't say, oh God, I've come up with this head knowledge, this idea. I've come up with, I put together the correct neurons that have connected properly to be able to have the fact of information that Jesus is true. Jesus, you know, was born of a virgin and died on the cross and rose again three days later. And his sin, his, his death, you know, covered my sin and all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. James says that that is a qualification for demons. Even Jesus, even, even demons know who Jesus is. Even demons know and Satan knows who, what the, the head knowledge of what it takes, what Jesus did on the cross. So that's, that's not the qualifications. The head knowledge isn't what makes you saved. Giving someone the head knowledge isn't what makes them saved. Convincing them is not what's going to save them. It is the Holy Spirit alone that acts on them and converts them from the dead sinner that they were to a new creation. Moving on comes to seek and save the lost. Everybody needs help. Nobody can do it on their own. You'll hear on their own a lot. Well, we don't believe God leaves anybody on their own. Okay, here we go. We don't believe anybody leaves anyone on their own. And I did not pull this verse up. I should have. I did a little pre-versing before at this, but I'm pretty quick uh, with uh, finding verses that I need um, to, that I need. So here we go real quick. I've got to find Romans real quick. <clears throat> okay. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like corruptible man, and birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and abandoned them to their sin, to uncleanliness of the lust of their hearts, to destroy dishonor their bodies among themselves and in case you think that this is just an idea in case you don't in case you think that this is not an ideological um, abandonment also who exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
That's an ideology. So if your if your ideology is against the truth of God and for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them to their vile passions. Even the women exchanged the natural use for what it is against nature. And so so anyway, so this is a the, the, so this is an example. God leaving people on their own. God abandons people to their sin. That's just the truth. God does abandon people to their sin. So that's just not factually correct. That's what incarnation is all about. That's what revelation is all about. God doesn't leave us on our own. He reveals. He uh, shows grace. He shows himself to us clearly uh, through revelation, uh, through scripture, um, through dreams, through our inner conscience that he's written the law in our heart. Okay. So this is what he says. He says, God does not leave us on our own. Um, what does he say? He says, um, okay, God does not leave us on our own. He reveals, he shows grace, he shows himself to us clearly through revelation, through scripture, and through dreams, and through inner conscience, he has written his law on his hearts. That's another thing that you're given when you're born, is the law written on your heart. That's something that you're given when you're born. So that part of it is true. The rest of it is not true. So we see in Matthew, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these amazing things in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we prophesied in your name? And I will say to you, I never knew you, right? So having revelations, right? Seeing that God is real, at the very least having the fact that God is real, right? The people have no excuse for not knowing God, right? So people are born with a knowledge, the presuppositionalism, People are born with the knowledge that God is, exists, right? So God does reveal himself through his invisible qualities. But those people can be condemned, right? That's just the truth. People can be condemned and know that there's a God. They can just reject it, right? Just because you have a knowledge of something doesn't mean that you accept it, right? So even if he reveals himself, which he has several times through nature and through Christ himself and through... Uh, you know, the, the things in this life, if you don't accept it, then you're still condemned, right? So revelation, what? Revelation, what? Like, is it the book of revelation? Is it the mental revelation through prophecy? Is it, uh, what is it? Um, through scripture? Because scripture does. Scripture is the word of God, for sure. Scripture is the word of God. But people go to hell. And the Bible is the most popular book in the world, right? So it was the first book ever printed. Right? People do still go to hell, even though the scripture is there, even though the truth is there, even these, these things. And so then he kind of, I mean, through dreams, I, I've, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I don't, I, I've never had that example in my life, you know, um, where dreams have happened, where they have been prophetic in nature. I don't know why, um, I, I don't know. I've never had that per se. I've dealt with uh, perhaps you know, deja vu. To a certain degree, but I don't think that's prophecy. I just think that it's just um, the brain, I don't know, doing so. There's probably some sort of neurological. The dreams part has happened in the past, obviously, like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and Joseph and all these examples of God working through dreams. And I think he does, but I don't know. I think that the difficulty there is that people, the dreams are notoriously fictional, you know? And so, um, I think that if God were to work in that certain capacity, he would also have the understanding to a certain degree that people would also take it at its face value to be fictional, right? And so, I don't know, it's just a, it's a difficulty that I have where it's like, uh, I don't know, it would have to be like a personal endeavor. I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I'll talk about it later probably. Um, but we all need help, yes. Does God provide sufficient help? Yeah, for those who are chosen. For those who are selected to be vessels of grace, that's who he helps, right? That's the Holy Spirit coming in. But we are born sinners all the way back to creation, all the way back at the beginning when Adam sinned. We are biologically sinners by nature. That's what we are, children of wrath. I keep doing that. We all need help, yes, but he provides sufficient help. So if you find a verse that says we need help, we'll just drop it in that second cup and say, we agree. 
Um, and then there's their hardened cup, the, the, those who become hardened and callous to the things of God. And sometimes Calvinists will, will grab a verse out of his context and say, look at how corrupt and bad and, and depraved this person is. And then you look at the context and you go, oh, okay, this person has been rejecting the things of God over and over and over again in their life. And the Bible says men, God will not contend with men forever. And God ultimately gives this person over to his corruptness. Uh, he's, he's now cut off in his depraved condition. He's hardened in that condition. He's got that pretty much down. He's talking about Pharaoh. Um, it's like obvious he's talking about Pharaoh, but he's doing it in a loose way um, because he's trying to kind of pick and shoot. He picked from Genesis 6 and he picks from Romans. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just what he's kind of doing. He's kind of putting these kind of general ideas because Calvinists tend to pick from Genesis 6 and Romans 118, and they kind of put them together and they kind of salt you know, the flavor, the rest of the Bible given through that lens. And that's what you're describing, but you're assuming that's a condition from birth. I'm not assuming that that's a condition from birth. And that's the deal. All right. And I actually did my homework on this one. All right. Check this out. All right. Genesis 6. Here we go. All right. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So... He regretted that he had made them on the earth and grieved it to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of a man and animals creeping. And then, blah, blah, blah. Now we talk to, um, uh, now we're talking to Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. So now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark. And then, um, one second, here we go. So there is this point where it is, you know, that we are entirely, totally, and completely corrupt, right? Now, this has nothing to do with birth, right? This doesn't say from birth, but it is, it is, it talks about like the core of man, all right? So that's point number one. Sustain that in the air here. Number two, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom, even there. This is the NLT. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom, even there. Right? And so, we have the Hebrew here. The Hebrew was, um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Being brought forth, I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Hebrew. Um, but being brought forth means to be born, right? And so, um, for example, um, let's see if I can find the brought forth. Uh, the depths were brought forth with no spring, right? And they were born essentially uh, to create, right? Um, there were no depths. I was brought forth when there were no fountains. And so that's Proverbs 8.24. And before... Before the hills, I was brought forth, right? Before the hills, right? Before everything, I was born, right? So that's kind of the idea that we have here. So before I was born, I was a sinner. I was brought forth in iniquity, right? So I was brought forth in iniquity. And then the other only time with iniquity is found is um, Isaiah 59.3. Blood in your fingers, iniquity your lips have spoken. Right, so blood in your fingers, sin, your lips have spoken, right? And so it's talking about the sin that someone has done. And if we go to this um, Isaiah 59.3, and I'm just going to take this here, okay? I'm going to toss this into the NLT thing real quick. I'm sorry, it's taking so long. Your hands are the hands of murderers, and your fingers are filthy with sin. Right? So we see that the iniquity is the sin. So I was born in 
as a sin. Now, this is not about David's mother having sex, having sin, se sinful sex, and then the iniquity is I was brought forth out of sinful sex, and I am a, a dirty baby, essentially. Because that's what some people believe. Some people believe, like, oh, David was talking about the fact that his mother had sex with somebody else, and, you know, they had that would corrupt the bloodline. <laughs> There's so many things about that that I'm not even going to get going into. But, okay, and then Psalms 58 is the last one. Um, okay, here we go. Um, you plot injustice in your heart and you spread violence throughout the land. These wicked people are born sinners. Even from birth, they have lied and have gone their own way. They spit venom like deadly snakes and are like cobras that refuse to listen. So, oh, and break off their fangs, oh God, because they were born sinners. Now he's talking about somebody else, but these people were born sinners. So here we go. Keeping forward. Here we go. And that's not what the passage is talking about. The passage is talking about someone who has grown calloused and hardened and because they have chosen to close their eyes and rebel against the things of God. And so, so he's talking about Pharaoh, someone who has chosen to close their eyes, right? But, okay, was, uh, was Pharaoh um, condemned at birth? Yeah, he was a sinner. Right? But obviously the dynamic of how salvation happens has changed since Pharaoh, right? because now we have Jesus and now the law of grace over the law of law. <laughs> right? um, but Pharaoh was never chosen. Pharaoh was condemned. Right? <laughs> like God chose to harden his heart, but the only people that were the chosen people were the Jews. Right? So his example of God hardening the heart and being Pharaoh, he didn't say Pharaoh, but he heavily implied it. Um, and it's, it's heavily implied that God hardened his heart and because he chose to be opposed to the will of God. No, it, the, the people were chosen. Israel was chosen without the permission of anyone. God chose Abraham and said, your nation is going to be great. Abraham, you're going to be great. And Abraham's like, what? Me? <laughs> you know, it's like, what? I, I didn't do anything. That's the whole point. You can't do anything to earn salvation, including choosing God. That's just not what happens. And so he's talking about someone who chooses to close his mind to God, but that's not the case. So you can't take those passages out of context and, and assume that they're talking about an innate condition from birth. And so we'll just take those passages where Calvinists quote out of context about people becoming hardened and calloused in the rebellion. And we'll just so some Calvinists, he's saying that some Calvinists use the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh as an example of God hardening the heart of others against him. I understand to a certain degree how it doesn't really marry to the birth part because it doesn't. But that's not what I don't think any good Calvinist would ex, would use the example of Pharaoh as a condemned at birth verse. I would use it more of a become hardened, like what he said, like the hardening of their heart, the Kazakh. Um, I would be more inclined to do that than to talk about you know because God used Pharaoh in his um, heart hardened state to show his glory, and that's why he has. Uh, people that have not been um, selected or elected. He uses those people as vessels of wrath because without people, for example, like Hitler, we don't know how evil something is until we see evil in and of itself. And so sometimes we need other evil to show ourselves evil, right? And sometimes we need alternative ideas so that the truth can win out, right? It's just the fallen nature. It's the complication of human nature, the complication of human fallenness and them trying to, and God executing his plan. Drop it in that third cup. What cup we, we were looking for, the actual point of contention, are the cups that talk about we are totally unable to respond positively. In other words, it's a moral inability that we're unable to positively respond to the things of God. The law and the gospel have no effect on us because of the nature we have from birth that we have no control over. Okay. To the things of God? This is where it gets kind of a little weird. All right. Because 
here, let me. God decreed because of the fall of Adam, everyone would be born in this spiritually dead-like condition where they're therefore unable to respond to the things of God. Now, again, I've always told you guys, I like to quote Calvinists for themselves because I... The things of God are opposed to humans, right? Because sin equals death and God is life, right? Like the, the, it's obvious that whoever dwells in the darkness, it does not like the light, does not have any truth in them, darkness and truth and all this stuff. God uses dark and light as that example, right? And so one of the things that I would say here is that it's not really about a hatred or um, it's not really a hatred towards God. Now, it is that, but it's more of a love for self. Is that humility is a godly thing that derives from knowing God, right? Is that you can't have humility without God. And so, therefore, you need humility in order to become a Christian. Right? And so, it's like this kind of backwards thing. Like, does God even want to be found? And so, you cannot... Um, say that what do you say here spiritually dead like condition we are born spiritually dead in you know we're born spiritually dead psalms 58 um psalms of uh, 51 5 and genesis 6 where they're therefore unable to respond to the things of god now again i've always told you guys i like to quote calvinists for themselves because i don't want to be accused of misrepresenting calvinists i get accused of that a lot even though i play them for themselves I let them speak for themselves. I always use their words. He always use their, and I'm, I'm going to say this, word, one word. He quotes one word from an entire article. It's coming up here pretty good. It's coming pretty good. Even though Calvinists aren't a monolithic group, there are different forms of Calvinism. There are different kinds of Calvinists. And I've always said that over and over and over again. So accusing me of not representing Calvinists fairly um, is a little bit hypocritical, given the fact that very few leading Calvinists. Wah, wah any kind of fair manner or play us for ourselves whenever they're doing critiques of us. So I, I think I go much further than most Calvinists do with regard to trying to represent my opponent fairly. So um, he, here's John MacArthur, Grace to You Ministries, talking on a sermon on total depravity. And so I want you to see for yourself um, uh, what he says. He says, you're not going to find a text, not any of the text, in which Jesus defends the ability of sinners. Okay. Um, I think you will find many texts that where Jesus and the authors of Scripture defend the responsibility of the sinners, the ability to respond of the sinner. So just because you're a sinner doesn't mean you lose the ability to respond, is what we would say. You're not going to find those texts anywhere where he defends the freedom of their wills. Jesus is no Arminian, he says. All those Scriptures that I went through, and many, many more, and again, you can go to this uh, Grace to You and look for it for yourself on, on Total Depravity, I welcome you to read the whole thing and to look through his whole sermon fine by me. Please do. I'm just picking a section to show what he says is total depravity. Okay. Um, all the will is his side. All the power is on his side is what he said. In other words, this is monergism for the Calvinist. Everything happens because of what God decrees. He's decided what you will decide with regard to the law and the gospel uh, is basically his argument here. To further answer the question, can sinners will and are they able I want to turn to even deeper to look at what it means to be a living dead. Let me break it down. What does the Bible say about the human heart? Let's go back to Genesis 6. And he goes up to Genesis 6, and we'll get through some of these. These are some of the, the proof texts that he will use. Um, and and he goes through these verses, which we're going to go through those verses that list on that that uh, that twit, the tweeter, the twit, that tweet that, that came through earlier. We're going to go list uh, all those. And you can see, I'm just scrolling through here just so you can see that John MacArthur is doing the exact same thing. He's using almost the exact same verses that you see there on that, that Twitter uh, exchange uh, on that meme, because this is the typical way in which Calvinists will defend the, this doctrine. And notice what he says right here. This doctrine is called total. What did he say again? One more time. And the, this meme, because this is the typical way in which Cal uh, exchange uh, on that meme because this is the typical way in which Calvinists will defend the, this doctrine. And so the typical way that Calvinists defend doctrine is using the Bible. Okay, thanks. Right, I like that. Notice what he says right here. This doctrine is called total depravity. But I feel that total depravity is a misleading term. If you look up depravity in the dictionary, it's a synonym for uh, vicciousness, uh, the synonym for vile, being vile. 
Um, in fact, to be depraved, according to the dictionary, is to be degraded, debased, immoral, or dangerous degree, or like a rapist, serial killer, those kinds of things. And so whenever people hear that kind of depravity, they think, well, everybody has to be a Jeffrey Dahmer or Charles Manson or Hitler or someone like that. So he's defending against just because it says totally depraved doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. And, they, and they're explaining that's a misnomer. And so just to be fair to Calvinists, that's not what they're trying to say. Um, that's not what is meant by the theologians who refer to total depravity because not everybody is as bad as they could be and uh, not everybody is uh, as bad as everybody else. What we're talking about here is what I've chosen to call absolute inability. So I've been accused of misrepresenting Calvinists by using the term inability. Okay, no one's, no one, you're good. You're good, man. But Calvinists use it. R.C. Sproul uses it. You're good, bro. I promise. John Piper uses it. MacArthur's using it right here. So what's he saying? He's saying, what's he saying? All right, let's let's talk about this exact quote that he's saying right here. If you're not, if you can't see, this is the quote that's on the screen. What is true of everybody is that we have no ability to respond to the gospel. That's what John MacArthur. That's the that's the full quote. What is true of everybody is that we have no ability to respond to the gospel. We were born sinners. We have no ability to respond to the gospel. That's all he says. That's, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen words. Okay, that's all he said. This is what he says. John MacArthur says, using it right here. So what's he saying? He's saying, I believe that because people are born in this condition, they are unable to respond even to God's light, his revelation, his truth, calling people to repentance and faith. They cannot, morally speaking, cannot want to do it. It's not like they're... Bro, <laughs> let's look at what this guy just said. Okay, so I believe that because people are born in this condition, they are unable to even respond to even God's light, his revelation, his truth, calling people to repentance and faith is what he said. That's what he says John MacArthur is saying. And what John MacArthur actually said is the inability to respond to the gospel. So what he's saying here is God's light, which is frankly a little vague. God's revelation. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? It's truth. We already, we already went through the fact that head knowledge cannot save you. Calling people to repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit does that for you. That's called the quickening. All right? And that, that idea, the word, word quickening, comes from um, uh, back in the day. Um, uh, there's this, uh, what is it called? It's Romans doo -doo -doo, Romans 4, and this is Romans 4, 17. Now, this is Young's uh, literal translation. Okay, so this is a literal translation of the Bible. Now, the word quickening, all right, sounds a little, in my opinion, it sounds a little cultish. I'm going to be honest. Like that, that does kind of sound like a little bit. But it's an old word that means um, um, when the... Um, baby is about to be like you feel the baby's life for the first time like when you feel the kick in or you feel the baby move for the first time right that's like what that what that means right um let's see here let's see if i can get this to kind of select a little bit i'm kind of new at this okay so just be patience give me patience where is it All right, a father of many nations, I have set thee. Before him, he did not believe God who is quickening the dead. He is calling the things that um, be not as being. Okay, so what that what that what that means? Okay, let's go back to what that means. Um, <clears throat> okay. Do, 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 do. I'm just gonna try and find, I'm trying to find the ESV real quick, but it's uh, not that big of a deal. We're just going to say, As it's written, Father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being what does not exist. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Amplified. 
well, we're just going to jump into something else. I don't know. I'm just trying to kind of give a little bit of, you know, variety in this. The emphasized Bible, even if that's written, Father of many nations, I have appointed thee before whom he believed, God, who causes the dead to live and calleth the things that are not things that they are, right? And so, I don't know. I'm just trying to put it out, point it out that there is... Um, this quickening concept is that you're dead and now you're alive. That's what that essentially means, is that um, quickening is specifically in terms of birth, right? So, and that's interesting because Paul uses this word quickening um, to refer to um, birth in this circumstance, that you're reborn, born as a new creation. And so, here's a couple of things to, to, to back this up, right? Um, John 3 this is with Nicodemus. Um, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see something that you are not a part of or, or has not been presented to you, right? God has to present the kingdom of God to you before you can see it. I assure you. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit and baptism. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to gives birth to the spiritual life, starts the spiritual life. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. You can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Okay? You just can't. And Jesus says, how are these things possible? And uh, Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish leader, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we will tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. So, the, this verse is extremely important for these things. You're dead to your sin. That's that's everywhere in the Bible. That's Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. I mean, come on, man. You're dead to your sin. So here we go. And then he talks about the inability. And he talks about all of these different things here. He says, um, John MacArthur is saying to respond to God's light, to respond to God's revelation, to his truth. But that's not what John MacArthur is talking about. John MacArthur is talking about the gospel. When someone reads this and says, eh, not for me, that's not the Holy Spirit working in them. That's not them. They, them, they themselves are the ones interacting with the gospel. This is no different. I mean, now keep bear in mind, this interaction is no different than an interaction with you, right? And so when you're talking to someone who is not a Christian and you're trying to explain the gospel to them the gospel is no different or shouldn't be any different than what's in here so for instance if they reject the gospel then they're not going to be saved is that wrong is that wrong because if they reject the gospel then they're not going to be saved right they have they don't have the ability to because the holy spirit hasn't worked in them they haven't been quickened. They haven't been called to life. They don't have the. They weren't born in the spirit yet, right? So, anyway, they're trying to do it and can't. It's they don't want to do it. They hate and reject the things of God from birth, and they can't control that. It's just an automatic hatred that they're born with. They just detest the things of God. It's not really the hate. It's more of a self-love. A lot of people love God that aren't Christians. A lot of people absolutely love the idea of Jesus because that makes them go to heaven. They get that fire insurance, right? So it's really about a love for self and not exactly a rejection of God entirely. It's not a hate for God, but it does kind of go into a certain perspective because um, C.S. Lewis puts it really great. He says that hell is locked from the inside, right? He says that when there's the um, wailing and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth is not ah this hurts that's not what that is the gnashing of teeth is i hate you that's what that is it's a lashing out right it's i want to do nothing i want nothing about you i want only me 
right? And sometimes there are people in this world that I've heard say, I would rather go to hell because I want absolutely nothing to do with God. That is a great description <laughs> of what it's like, right? Because people want the benefit of salvation. People want to go to heaven. People want to be regenerated. People want to be a good person. But they want themselves more. They want what they want. They want what they want. They want what they want. And they're not willing to change for it. God, because of the way they were born. Now, I think that removes blameworthiness. And I think, in other words, I think somebody's more blameworthy when they have control over their character. And Calvinists are teaching, ultimately, you have no control over your character. You're born a God-hater, and you can't control that. I think that removes blameworthiness. I think you're more blameworthy when you do have some... All right, he's going into blameworthiness. We're going to stop this video, and we're going to go on to the next one. The best quote that I can end on here is um, from him. I'm going to quote him, and I'm going to give him his quote. Here we go. We don't initiate anything. God initiates everything. That is the entire shindig. That's everything. I hope this finds you well. I hope that everything... Oh, I hope that everything is going well with you. And uh, yeah, in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.